Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Fight in Scotland at the cost of thousands of men's lives, usurping royal authority, and attempting to fund the destruction of Queen Isabella and her son Duke Edward while they were in France. Sir William, sitting in judgment, condemned Dispenser to the full and hideous death of a robber, traitor, and tyrant. He was to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, his entrails were to be burned before him, and he would be beheaded. "'Go to meet your fate, traitor, tyrant, renegade,' thundered Trussell, Go to receive your justice, traitor, evil man, criminal. Along with his associate Simon de Redding, who had been tried alongside him, Dispenser was roped to four horses and dragged through the streets of Hereford to the walls of the castle. There both men had nooses placed around their necks, and Dispenser was hoisted onto a specially made fifty-foot gallows, designed to make punishment visible to everyone in the town. A fire burned beneath the scaffold, and it was here that Dispenser's genitals were thrown after the executioner scaled a ladder and hacked them off with a knife. He was then drawn. His intestines and heart were cut out and also hurled down into the flames. Finally his body was lowered back to the ground and butchered. The crowd whooped with joy as his head was cut off to be sent to London, while his body was quartered for distribution about the country. This was the fate of the most notorious traitor in England, another baron slaughtered in the orgy of violence that had engulfed the realm since Edward's accession. But what of the king himself? What to do with Edward was a vexing question. Twenty disastrous years had demonstrated to all that the king was incapable of leading the country competently. Yet nearly a hundred and seventy-five years of Plantagenet rule had been based on an evolving partnership between kings and the community of the realm. Kings had been threatened with deposition. John, Henry III, and Edward I had all been warned that they might be deprived of their thrones in moments of crisis, but the reality was quite different. The whole basis of English law and governance, which for the most part operated efficiently and to the advantage of the majority of English subjects, rested on an authority that stemmed ultimately from the crown. The king was counselled by his advisers, and he consulted parliaments over matters of taxation and war but he remained the source of all public authority, and in a properly functioning realm, the bulwark against anarchy. Who had the right to depose him and declare another man king? Who could speak for this higher authority? If the realm unilaterally deposed, or worse, killed the king, was it not killing itself? What hope was there of order in a state where a king who upset a faction of his kingdom might be summarily removed? These were all, to some degree, unanswerable questions. Yet everyone agreed on the practical reality Edward had to be removed from power. To bolster the case against him, Isabella and Mortimer's propaganda machine ground into action. Adam Alton, Bishop of Hereford, was active in preaching that Isabella and her son had returned to England because the king and dispenser were sodomites and tyrants. The first charge is unknowable, but the second was undeniable. From this point on, Edward's reputation as a degenerate homosexual began to run wild throughout contemporary chronicles. 
As soon as the Christmas celebrations had finished, Parliament assembled at Westminster to decide the King's fate. The Queen could not even visit her husband in his prison at Kenilworth Castle, where he was held over Christmas 1326. Bishop Alton reported that if Edward saw his wife, he was liable to kill her. Words later attributed to Alton, although he denied them, were that Edward carried a knife in his hose to kill Queen Isabella, and that if he had no other weapon he would crush her with his teeth. Edward utterly refused to travel from Kenilworth and engage with the proceedings, probably reasoning that without him present the Parliament would lack legitimacy. But this was another misjudgment, and business carried on without him. The Bishop of Hereford addressed Parliament on January 12th, and asked the Assembly whether Edward II should continue as King, or be replaced by his son. By the evening it was decided that he should be replaced, and a series of articles of accusation was drawn up. The following day Roger Mortimer stood up in Westminster Hall and told the assembled prelates and lay nobles that the magnates collectively wished for the inadequate king to be removed from the realm. Westminster then heard sermons from the leading bishops of the realm, giving ecclesiastical weight to the decision that had been taken. The Bishop of Hereford preached upon the text of Proverbs chapter 11 verse 14, where there is no governor, the people shall fall. The Bishop of Winchester used the phrase, Caput meum doleo, my head hurts, to argue that an evil head spread evil throughout the body of the kingdom. Finally, the Archbishop of Canterbury gave a sermon in French, using the popular medieval aphorism, Vox populi, Vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. When he had finished telling the assembly that God had heard their prayers for a remedy to the evils of Edward's reign, he introduced the fourteen-year-old boy, Edward, Duke of Aquitaine, who was to be the new king. Glory, Lord, and honour was sung. Later in the day, oaths were sworn at the Guildhall to protect and uphold the honour of Queen Isabella and her son, who would be king. All that now remained was to convince Edward himself to concur with the wishes of the community of the realm, and voluntarily relinquish his office. To that end a delegation of twenty-four worthy men was sent to Kenilworth to confront him. Henry of Lancaster and the bishops of Winchester and Lincoln were sent ahead of the rest of the group, and on January 20th they met the king, and told him that his time had passed. Edward resisted. The chronicler Geoffrey Baker says that he was told that failure to abdicate in favour of his son would mean deposition. A new non-plantagenet king would be elected, and his entire bloodline, not merely his own person, would be removed from kingship. A tearful argument followed, and by the time the twenty-one remaining representatives of the realm arrived, Edward was so grief-stricken that he had to be held on his feet by Lancaster and the Bishop of Winchester. On January 24, 1327, London woke to proclamations that Edward had, of his own good will and with the common assent of the prelates, earls and barons, and other nobles and of all the commonalty of the realm, resigned the government of the realm. A new king had been appointed. Edward, Duke of Aquitaine, had become King Edward III, and the old king was reduced once more to Edward of Carnarvon. Sir William Trussell, the hanging judge of the invasion, had formally withdrawn homage on behalf of all the kingdom. Oaths were sworn to the new king. Any voices of dissent were momentarily drowned out by the clamour of the revolutionaries. False Dawn The boy king Edward III was crowned at Westminster on February 1st, in a ceremony arranged at unprecedented speed. Royal authority had collapsed to a woeful condition under his father. The immediate priority for the new king and his minders was to re-establish it. Fortunately, since most of England's political community was in London at the end of January, it proved relatively simple to assemble them at Westminster at short notice, to see Edward, along with three of Roger Mortimer's sons, knighted by the thirty-six-year-old Henry of Lancaster, brother of the late Earl. Then, on the day of the coronation itself, Westminster Abbey filled with magnates and prelates, to watch Archbishop Reynolds of Canterbury lower the large, heavy crown of Edward the Confessor, fitted with extra padding to ensure it did not topple off at some critical, ill-omened moment, 
onto the head of the fourteen-year-old king. Edward swore the same coronation oath that Edward II had taken in 1307, including the novel fourth vow that his father had so conspicuously failed to observe, that he would hold and preserve the laws and righteous customs which the community of the realm shall have chosen. The new reign was then celebrated with a feast in Westminster Hall of wilder extravagance and luxury than would be seen again for another half-century. The hall glittered with priceless cloth and precious plate. The royal throne was hung on every side with cloth of gold. The celebratory atmosphere served as a much-needed counterpoint to the miserable, bloody events of the previous year, and there was no mistaking the political message— the old king might have fallen, but the crown itself remained supreme and magnificent. Yet kingship was palpably not recovered. At fourteen, Edward had reached the age of discretion, but he was not fit to rule in his own right. This presented an ambiguous state of affairs, a king too old to be a mere figurehead, but not yet old enough to take the reins of power in both hands. Although he took control of his own household from March 1327, the real business of government very quickly fell to Queen Isabella, who controlled influence and access to her son, and Roger Mortimer, who performed a similar role toward the Queen. It would not be very long before they too had perverted the principles of the royal office they were supposed to protect. The first task of the new regime was to rehabilitate the outcasts of the previous reign. A parliament assembled the day after the coronation reversed the sentences of treason that had been passed on Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, and his allies in 1322, and allowed for the proper inheritance of the family estates and titles, which were largely awarded to Henry of Lancaster. Mortimer was restored to his lands and titles, and began an aggressive pursuit of other marcher territories, beginning with those belonging to his uncle, Roger Mortimer of Chirk, who had recently died. None of this was very unusual, for Mortimer, like Henry of Lancaster, was fully entitled to reclaim what had been unfairly taken from him by Edward II and the Dispensers. Yet there were signs very early that Isabella and Mortimer had just as grasping a mindset as their forerunners. Before Edward's coronation, during the chaotic bloodletting that preceded her husband's abdication, Queen Isabella had resumed all the lands of her dowry, worth some forty-five hundred pounds. When her son was crowned, she was awarded further estates, taking her landed income to twenty thousand marks, making her a greater landowner than any other magnate in England. This massive accumulation of wealth, combined with her access to the large stockpiles of treasure that had been amassed by her husband and the dispensers, rattled onlookers. Of more immediate concern, however, was the Queen's involvement in foreign politics. Here three urgent issues pressed the new government. Peace with Isabella's brother Charles IV of France had to be formalized to protect the disputed borders of the beleaguered Aquitanian territories. Scotland required a show of force to subdue its impertinent natives, some of whom had led a successful assault on the English-held castle at Norham on February 1st, the very day that Edward was crowned. Finally, Edward needed a bride through whom to sire a new generation of princes. Failure greeted almost every move. The terms of the Treaty of Paris, hastily agreed upon with the French crown, reached the king in Lincolnshire in mid-April, and it was clear that they were designed not only to humiliate him, but also to cripple his realm financially. English possessions in southwestern France were reduced to the Gascon coast between Bordeaux and Bayonne. Everything else would be controlled directly by the French king. The cost to Edward for retaining this tiny sliver of the former Plantagenet Empire was a punitive bill of fifty thousand marks. It seems that Isabella and Mortimer recognized just how high a price they were being made to pay for peace because the detailed terms of the treaty were suppressed on the English side of the Channel. This represented a helpless acquiescence, an acceptance that England was too mired in internal discord to contemplate reconquest in France. When Charles died in 1328 without a direct heir, minimal effort was made to turn the situation to England's advantage. Although Edward was one of the three surviving grandsons of Philip IV, and thus had a claim to the French crown, 
Only token protests were made when Charles's cousin Philip of Valois was crowned Philip VI, following a strictly male line of succession. This later became known as Salic law. Edward, whose claim to the French crown was transmitted by his mother, travelled to Amiens in 1329 to pay homage to the new king for the rump of Aquitaine and the county of Ponthieu. This was hardly a sign that the English were prepared to use his dynastic claim as a bargaining lever for greater security in his continental lands. In Scotland things fared worse. Border raids continued from February into the summer, with bands of Scots crossing into northern England to burn and plunder as they pleased. At the same time as the terms of the Treaty of Paris were put before a disappointed Edward III in Lincolnshire, royal orders were heading north for an old-fashioned feudal muster of troops at Newcastle-upon-Tyne and York. Edward and his mother travelled in late May to York, where they met with a band of five hundred Flemish knights under Isabella's continental ally John of Hainaut. This elite fighting unit made itself immediately unpopular with the citizens of England's second city by fighting with the English troops, rampaging in violent disorder through the streets of York. Despite this unpromising beginning, Edward left Isabella in York in early July and set out for the Scottish border, aiming to meet the enemy, amassed under the veteran commander Sir James Douglas, and bring them to battle. The mission was a disaster. Douglas spent several weeks dodging his English pursuers before abruptly changing tack at the end of the month. He fell upon the royal camp near Stanhope Park near Durham, scattering the king's attendants, and according to one chronicle, rode to the middle of the royal encampment, always crying Douglas, and stroke asunder two or three cords of the king's tent. Several days later Douglas took his rampaging troops on a final retreat back into Scotland. Edward was said by several chroniclers to have been so enraged at his own failure that he wept in fury. Well might he have done. The campaign ran through funds so quickly that the crown jewels had to be pawned to keep the English government solvent. By the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, so called because it was sealed in Edinburgh by Robert Bruce in early 1328, and subsequently ratified by an English parliament held in May at Northampton, Mortimer and Isabella accepted that they could not afford to wage a war in the north. They settled with the Scots, disgracefully giving up England's claim to overlordship in Scotland for a paltry twenty thousand pounds. Scotland was recognised as a sovereign kingdom, ruled over by Bruce and his heirs, and constrained by the border as it had been in Alexander III's time. Edward's six-year-old sister Joanna was betrothed and swiftly married to Bruce's infant son David. This did little to obscure the fact that everything the English had fought for since Edward I's glorious war had begun in 1295 was forfeited in a stroke. Edward's wedding at least was more certain. The alliance made with the Count of Hainaut before Isabella and Mortimer's invasion was honoured, and the young Philippa of Hainaut, born sometime between 1310 and 1315, so approximately Edward's own age, was brought over to London in late 1327. The couple were married at York Minster on January 26, 1328, in an opulent, gold-trimmed ceremony designed to demonstrate as surely to Edward's northern subjects as his coronation had shown his southern ones that royal power was not in decline. That such magnificence could be afforded against a background of war-weary penury was thanks to the Plantagenet's generous Italian bankers, the Bardi family. The Bardis would learn their lesson some years later, when Edward's repeated defaults on his loans ruined them, a financial catastrophe that began the rise of the Medici family in Italy. Marriage was one area of foreign diplomacy in which Isabella and Mortimer succeeded, although Isabella's wish to exercise the powers of queen consort meant that she would not allow the girl's coronation for nearly two years. Yet Edward's wedding came against the background of strange events closer to home. During the night hours of September 23, 1327, the young king was woken in his chamber at Lincoln and told that his father was dead. Since April, Edward of Carnarvon had been imprisoned in a dungeon in Berkeley Castle, Gloucestershire, and it was there that he had died two days previously, according to the messengers, from natural causes. 
Since the young king was pressingly engaged with parliamentary business related to the Scottish situation, plans to bury the old king were made for December. At the time of Edward's death very few people questioned the cause. Edward III certainly seems to have accepted that his father had died in unexceptional circumstances, and organized a funeral for him. But as the years passed, a number of descriptions of Edward of Carnarvon's death circulated, beginning to suggest that there had been foul play. At first the king was said to have died from grief or illness or in some sort of pain. Soon, though, talk turned to the presumption of murder. Three times during Edward of Carnarvon's imprisonment plots had been uncovered to release him from captivity, once in April while he was imprisoned at Kenilworth, and twice in July and September during his captivity at Barclay. The first two plots involved Dominican friars, but the third involved men from Wales, the most prominent among them Rhys ab Griffith, a long-time ally of Edward II who had come to his assistance in 1321 and 1322, and been with him during his final flight in 1326. It began to be rumoured that these repeated escape attempts had exhausted the patience of Isabella and Mortimer, and eventually Mortimer had ordered that the old king be slain in his cell. In October 1330 it was stated before Parliament that Edward had been murdered. Two decades after Edward's death, the well-informed chronicler Adam of Murrimuth wrote that the king had been killed by a trick, and that Roger Mortimer had had him suffocated. As news of Edward's death spread and suspicions of murder strengthened, the supposed cause of death grew more extreme. A tradition grew up that he had been strangled before suffering the agonizing fate of internal burning, with a red-hot poker inserted via a trumpet device placed in his rectum. This has become the standard account of Edward's death, because, as its originators probably intended, there is a ghastly poetic symbolism in the emasculated, decadent, possibly homosexual king being buggered to death. It is almost certainly untrue. Nevertheless, it seems most likely that Edward was indeed murdered, and that it happened on the orders of Roger Mortimer. The murderers were probably Mortimer's allies William Ogle and Sir Thomas Gurney, acting in alliance with the steward of the royal household Sir John Maltravers, who was personally responsible for Edward's custody. In any case, Edward of Carnarvon was buried on December 20, 1327. He was not buried with his grandfather and father next to the confessor's tomb in the Plantagenet Mausoleum at Westminster Abbey. Rather, he was interred at St. Peter's Abbey in Gloucester, where Henry III had been crowned as a nine-year-old boy during the Civil War of 1217. Perhaps it was appropriate that the only other royal figure to have been buried there was Robert Curthose, son of William the Conqueror, a man who might have been a king of England, but who had instead been imprisoned for nearly thirty years at Devizes and Cardiff by his brother Henry I. Edward was buried in the underclothes he had worn at his ill-fated coronation in 1308, and he had the distinction of bearing on his tomb the first-ever royal effigy to be used in England, a tradition that continued for centuries after his death. If it was not quite a great royal farewell, it was still a surprisingly dignified end for a king who had besmirched the English royal line and suffered the most damning verdict imaginable in the articles of accusation published by his enemies in January 1327. These had described him as incompetent to govern in person, controlled and governed by others who have given him evil counsel, and unwilling to listen to good counsel, nor to adopt it, nor give himself to the good government of his realm. Eleven months on from his deposition, all remained acutely aware that Edward II had stripped his realm, and done all that he could to ruin his realm and his people, and what is worse, by his cruelty and lack of character, he has shown himself incorrigible without hope of amendment, which things are so notorious that they cannot be denied. But was the regime that had succeeded him really any better? The answer more and more appeared to be no. Concerns with Isabella and Mortimer's control over the young king went beyond their influence in foreign policy. At home their behaviour increasingly seemed to mirror the acquisitive excess that had blighted the previous reign. By 1330 they had gone even further, and England plunged once more into the depths of murderous villainy. As Mortimer grew confident in the Queen's support, 
He soon found that he was as unable as a Gaveston or a dispenser to resist using his proximity to royal prerogative to enrich himself. He steadily accumulated territories throughout Wales and the Marches, many of which had been confiscated from the traitors of 1326. At a series of tournaments held around England, Mortimer presided above Edward III in quasi-kingly fashion, holding round tables and parading himself as King Arthur, a nod to his Welsh ancestry. He revelled in his role as consort to the king's mother, and in a parliament held at Salisbury in 1328, he succeeded in his final ascent to the upper ranks of the nobility when he was awarded the extraordinary and novel title of Earl of March. So soon after the dispenser fiasco, this was wildly disruptive. On his watch, England had suffered humiliation on two fronts of war and diplomacy. The king's young wife was still uncrowned. Judicial commissions of Trailbaston, brigandage courts, which had been sent out into the shires to deal with widespread violence and disorder, had collapsed. And the crown, despite the treasure that had been inherited from the old king, and the vast loans taken from the Bardi Bank, was perilously close to bankruptcy. Yet the new Earl of March was enriching himself to the point where he resembled another king. As disillusion grew with the new regime, England began to split once more into warring factions. Henry, Earl of Lancaster, led the opposition, which by January 1329 threatened to turn to outright warfare. Suggestions sped around that the king, through his failure to take good counsel and govern reasonably, was in breach of both the Magna Carta and his coronation oath. War seemed so probable that a new set of armour was commissioned for Edward. Throughout almost the whole of 1329 the seventeen-year-old king was kept away from Westminster and London, prevented from taking command of government himself, coddled like a child by his rapacious mother and her lover. Full civil war was mercifully avoided, but by the spring of 1330 Edward could be nannied no more. Philippa Aveno was pregnant, a fact that demanded her coronation at Westminster Abbey in February. Simultaneously, very worrying rumours reached the ears of the court. It had begun to be said that Edward of Carnarvon, buried in Gloucester more than two years previously, was alive and at large. Stories of Edward II's supposed survival remain in currency to this day, active particularly in a tradition that has the former king escaping captivity and living out his days as a hermit in Italy. That they are unconvincing is neither here nor there, in 1330 the notion that the old king might return was a frightening prospect that haunted everyone who had been complicit in his abdication. It is possible that one source of the rumours was the man responsible for the king's death. By 1330 the Earl of March was more unpopular than ever before. It seemed highly likely that the French were about to annex what remained of Aquitaine, and Mortimer had made himself gravely unpopular by attempting arbitrarily to seize funds for the defence of Gascony from local communities and individual lords. He had many bitter enemies, not least Henry, Earl of Lancaster, but also the king's half-uncles, Thomas, Earl of Norfolk, and Edmund, Earl of Kent. While both had professed their loyalty to the crown, Mortimer saw them as threatening to his own position as protector and governor of the king's person. At the end of a Parliament held in Winchester in March 1330, at which funds for the defence of Gascony were under urgent discussion, Mortimer launched an attack on the Earl of Kent. As Parliament was breaking up, Kent was suddenly arrested for treason, and accused of plotting to make contact with his supposedly living half-brother Edward II at Corfe Castle. The Earl was dragged before a court set up hastily under Mortimer's presidency, he was charged with treason, incriminating letters were produced, and he was duly found guilty. He was summarily disinherited, his wife and children were sentenced to imprisonment in Salisbury Castle, and Kent himself was sentenced to death outside the walls of Winchester Castle. It was a mark of the savage, terrifying nature of Mortimer's decision that for some time no one could be found to execute the sentence. Eventually another prisoner at Winchester, responsible for cleaning the latrines, was given his freedom in exchange for hacking off poor Kent's head. Yet another earl had gone to his death, and this one of royal blood. Edmund was a son of Edward I, and thus an even greater casualty than Thomas of Lancaster had been. 
As Parliament broke up and the King headed to Woodstock to join his wife for the birth of their first child, a boy named Edward born on June 15th, he was distraught. He had wished to pardon Kent, but had been overridden by Mortimer. Edward III was a husband, a father, and a king, but another man ruled his realm, slept with his mother, and murdered his kin as he saw fit. The kingdom, beggared by his father, was approaching the point of total dissolution under Mortimer's cruel and greedy tyranny. Three disastrous years of misgovernment had brought as much calamity upon England as had been seen under the old king. The time had come for action. Edward III, desperate, daring, and not without courage, began to plot the recapture of his crown. A bright new age of kingship was about to dawn. Part Six: Age of Glory, 1330-1360 Long live, therefore, the young Edward, and may he himself embody the virtues that enriched each of his forefathers separately. May he follow the industry of King Henry II, the well-known valour of King Richard. May he reach the age of King Henry III, revive the wisdom of King Edward I, and remind us of the physical strength and comeliness of his father. The Life of Edward II on the Birth of Edward III Royal Coup the plotters moved as quietly as they could through a secret underground passage deep in the bowels of Nottingham Castle. There were at least sixteen, and perhaps more than twenty of them, heavily armed, mostly young men, loyal to their king and desperate for their own lives. Above them the castle was settling down for the night, emptied of the day's visitors, who had returned to their lodgings in the town outside. The only sounds in the tunnel would have been stifled breath, the dull clank of moving armour, and the crackle of torchlight. They were acting on urgent royal orders. Earlier in the day five of the conspirators in the tunnel and the seventeen-year-old king himself had been hauled before a suspicious panel headed by Roger Mortimer, Earl of March, the Queen's lover, who had been controlling the government of England for three years. Spies had informed Mortimer that a group of men around the young king were planning an attempt on his life. All had strenuously denied it. All had left their interrogation knowing that they had to act. The leader was William Montague, twenty-nine years old, a knight banneret in Edward III's household and a friend of the king's. He had accompanied Edward on recent business in France, and had just returned from the papal curia at Avignon, where he had been sent to relay secret messages to Pope John XXII. Montague was a soldier, a loyalist, a royal friend, just as his father had been to Edward II. He feared that the king's life was in jeopardy from Mortimer, and had told the king that day that immediate action was essential. "'It is better to eat dog than to be eaten by the dog,' he had told the king, and Edward had heeded his advice, giving his assent to a plan that was destined either to be a suicide mission or to rescue the crown." Alongside Montague crept four more of Edward's household companions, Edward Boone, Robert Ufford, and William Clinton, also bannerets, and John Neville of Hornby, a household knight. These were brave men, ready to risk their lives for their lord on a violent, dangerous mission. Key to the mission was a sixth man, William Eland, speculator of Nottingham Castle. A speculator was probably a watchman, in which case Eland knew the corridors and passageways of the fortress better than any man alive. The tunnel through which Montague and his men now stole was the only route into a castle to which Mortimer held the keys. The earl left them under the queen's pillow at night. The tunnel linked the river-bank outside with Queen Isabella's apartment at the heart of the castle. Eland had flouted his duties on October 19, 1330, and left unlocked the postern gate in the tunnel. Now he used his inside knowledge to guide the men through the darkness. Nottingham Castle was rotten with treachery. Within the castle, co-conspirators, including Edward's personal physician, Pancio de Controne, supplied alibis for the king to absent himself for the evening, and may even have helped unlock the door that joined the secret passage to the castle keep. Eland and Montague must have prayed as they led their men up the spiral staircase from deep underground to the heart of the royal quarters, 
that their plot would not have been foiled by the time they reached the final door. If Mortimer had cracked any one of their allies, he might already have sent soldiers into the tunnel behind them. Death and ruin would await. In the Queen's Hall, Isabella sat in conference with Mortimer, his two sons, Geoffrey and Edmund, Simon Bereford, Sir Hugh Turpington, and Henry Berghirsch, Bishop of Lincoln, discussing the best way to proceed against the men who, unbeknownst to them, had now left the tunnel and entered the castle keep, and were advancing on the meeting-room with deadly intent. As Montague and his men burst into the apartment complex, they encountered Turpington, the steward of the household, who was ultimately responsible for the security that had now been breached. John Neville attacked and killed him. The noise drew the startled attention of those few household esquires posted as guards at the doorway of the hall. As the plotters burst in, they cut down two of the guards where they stood. Mortimer ran, aiming for his chamber to collect his sword, but he and two of his advisers were captured and arrested, and the Earl of March was deliberately kept alive to be tried as a traitor. Both of Mortimer's sons, as well as Simon Bereford, were also taken prisoner. According to the brute chronicler, Bishop Berghirsch forgot his ecclesiastical dignity completely. He made a bid to flee by running to the lavatory and trying to throw himself down the chute that evacuated human waste to the moat outside. As Montague's men gave chase and eventually hauled the bishop from his squalid bolt-hole, Queen Isabella stood by the door of the hall wailing into the darkness, calling for her son, who she believed was lurking behind the plotters. By these dramatic means, the seventeen-year-old Edward III threw off his shackles and took personal control of the government. The day after the coup, a declaration made to the sheriffs of England informed them that Roger Mortimer, Earl of March, had been arrested, and that Edward would, "'Henceforth govern his people according to right and reason, as befits his royal dignity, and that the affairs that concern him and the estate of the realm—' shall be directed by the common council of the magnates of the realm, and in no other wise. After his arrest, Mortimer was imprisoned and prepared for a grand trial before a parliament that met in Westminster Hall in November 1330. Bound, gagged, and humiliated, he was brought before the assembled peers of the realm. He was accused, according to the official parliamentary record, of having— usurped by himself royal power and the government of the realm concerning the estate of the king, and of having used his servant John Ray to spy on Edward's actions and his words, so that in such a way our said lord the king was surrounded by his enemies, so that he was unable to do as he wished, so that he was like a man living in custody. The long list of charges—Mortimer was accused of fourteen separate crimes—included alienating royal lands with the creation of his earldom making war upon the Earl of Lancaster and his allies, framing the Earl of Kent for treason, and siphoning off royal funds, including the fee paid by the Scots for peace. Most important, however, Mortimer was explicitly accused of Edward II's murder. The said Roger, by the royal power usurped by him, ordained that the old king be sent to Berkeley Castle, where he was traitorously, feloniously, and falsely murdered and killed by him and his followers reads the record. This was the first time that it was officially stated that Edward II had been murdered, and it was enough for Mortimer to be drawn and hanged as a traitor and an enemy of the king and of the realm. In keeping with all the other noble killings that had taken place, Mortimer was not allowed to speak in his own defence. But with his traitor's death at Tyburn on November 29, 1330, a gruesome chapter was closed. Isabella, for her part, was not ill-treated. As the king's mother, she was simply removed from power and pensioned off. She spent the next twenty-seven years of her life in magnificence and luxury at Castle Rising in Norfolk, playing an important diplomatic role for the crown, and participating in her son's increasingly lavish ceremonial feasts and family celebrations. With his daring sponsorship of a dramatic coup and a decisive seizure of power at the approach of his eighteenth birthday, Edward III gave promising signs that he had the character and capability to restore some sense of normality and order to a badly diminished realm. And indeed he did so. He showed early on a pattern of behaviour that would underpin everything his kingship stood for. He identified a problem and took radical, even reckless action to solve it, 
aided by a close group of trusted supporters. This would prove to be an effective, intoxicating form of kingship, but it took many years of difficulty before Edward was recognized for what he was, perhaps the greatest of all the Plantagenet kings. This audiobook is continued on Disc 13. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones Continued Disc 13 Glorious King of a Beggared Kingdom In the aftermath of the Nottingham coup, Edward was lauded throughout his land. He turned eighteen years old in November 1330, and was at last in sole command of his crown and his destiny. His personal badge was the sunburst, rays of golden sunshine exploding from behind a thick cloud, and this was the impression that the young king wished his subjects to take, as he stepped out from the cramping grasp of his mother's lover to rule the kingdom as his own man. The new king offered light, courage, and hope. He marked the beginning of his reign with a series of tournaments, mainly held around London and the southeast. Here he presented himself at once as a knightly king, his court a centre of revelry and fun, romance and martial competition. This king led a gay life in jousts and tournaments and entertaining ladies, wrote the northern chronicler Sir Thomas Gray. Tournaments became a near-monthly feature of his reign, each one an occasion for the great men and women of the realm to dress up in splendid costumes, acting out roles as fierce animals, mythical beasts, and heavenly beings, rehearsing great stories from history and legend, and cavorting about dressed mischievously as friars, merchants, or priests. Large and keenly fought mock battles that took place both bonded the aristocrats who fought in them, and provided valuable training for a time that was to be dominated once more by real warfare. The king at the centre of it all was a vigorous, athletic, enterprising young man. Most representations of him show a slightly delicate face, with a long, slender nose beneath wide, deep-set eyes and a flat brow. He had a high forehead, and in keeping with the times wore throughout his adult life a long beard, described as Berry Brown by a poem written in the mid-1350s. Thick, wavy hair hid his ears, and stood out from beneath the fine hat or commander's helmet that he almost invariably wore. He was an exceptional horseman, and a redoubtable warrior, as well as a paragon of chivalric magnificence. He and Queen Philippa had a taste for the finest clothes, embroidered with slogans and quasi-cryptic royal sayings. Some of Edward's favourite mottos later in his life included, It is as it is. Hey, hey, the white swan, by God's soul I am thy man, and psyker as ye woodbind, strong as the woodbine. Queen Philippa's slogans included, Ich windermuth, I wind myself around you, and mine bidden I, my bidding. The coin struck to commemorate Edward's coronation had featured a slogan that captured the king's lifelong confidence and ease in his own office. I did not take... I received. Outward show and pageantry were an essential skill for any king, but Edward had a better intuition for it than any of his predecessors, excepting only Henry III. He imported the finest gold cloth from the Far East, and his robes were decorated with exotic animals—leopards, tigers, pelicans, and falcons. He loved music, and as his court travelled it rang with minstrels singing, drums and lutes filling the air with sound the king at the heart of it all, laughing with joy at the spectacle he created. He kept a menagerie that included lions, leopards, a bear, and various apes and monkeys. He was as avid a huntsman as any king before him. Of his forebears only Henry II could have matched the thrill Edward got from thundering on horseback through his parks, forests, and the English countryside, chasing down wild animals to shed their blood. The thousands of pounds he spent on sumptuous costumes and lavish entertainment for himself, his friends, and his family, combined to create a vision of royal power that was worthy of celebration. In tune with his personal knack for charming the ladies of the court, and striking up close brotherly friendships with the men, Edward began from the earliest days of his personal reign to bind the noblemen and knights of England— the political class with whom all successful kings would cultivate a natural amity, 
to his rule. Edward III was a conventionally educated young aristocrat, versed in the spheres of knowledge and culture that fitted his position. He spoke both English and the courtly language of northern France. Brought up surrounded by scholars such as Richard Berry, an Oxford scholar and churchman who turned government administrator and became one of the king's closest advisers, he had absorbed what they had taught him, and was literate beyond the simple standard of being able to read in Latin and French. He was the first English king to leave us examples of his handwriting. He took his instruction on kingship from a variety of classic texts on governance, known as the Mirrors for Princes, books by European scholars analysing the great achievements and ignoble failures of rulers modern and ancient, which were designed to reveal sound principles of leadership to their readers. Edward had been fascinated from his youth by the great heroes of history and mythology, and he was especially taken with a popular fourteenth-century literary staple, the lives of the Nine Worthies. These consisted of three good pagans, Hector, Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar, three great biblical kings, Joshua, David, and Judas Maccabeus, and three great Christian kings, Arthur, Charlemagne, and Godfrey of Bouillon, the first king of Jerusalem. He consciously studied the lives of kings, and would try to imbue his own reign with their best qualities, while avoiding their failures. He was fascinated by the providential quality of history, with its ability both to foreshadow the events of his own life, and to set the conditions for the lives of his descendants. His contemporaries, excited by the dash of his Nottingham coup, were eager to see him as fulfilling the prophecies of Merlin, and Edward did not discourage them, visiting Glastonbury in 1331 and inspecting the great tomb of Arthur and Guinevere, which his grandfather had commissioned. Indeed, of all his Plantagenet ancestors, Edward III reserved special veneration for Edward I, sending gold cloth to Westminster to deck his tomb, sharing his tastes for Arthuriana, and ensuring that the anniversary of the death of the Hammer of the Scots was never neglected. The Leopard, Edward I's pejorative nickname during his youth, now became a symbol of Edward III's kingship in its heraldic form of the lion passant gardent. For all his finery, Edward understood that kingship was, more than at any time before, a sacred bond between king and realm. At some tournaments he liked to fight incognito, disguised as an ordinary warrior, and competing shoulder to shoulder with his contemporaries and companions. In his taste for the legends of Arthur, he was careful not to emulate Roger Mortimer's arrogant assumption of the legendary king's role. During the 1330s, Edward preferred to identify himself as one of the simple knights of the round table, most frequently Sir Lionel. Mortimer had been the first to assign him this role, when at a tournament held in 1329 at Wigmore, he had presented the king with a cup bearing Sir Lionel's arms. That Edward persisted in playing Sir Lionel, wearing the same arms at the tournaments he held throughout the 1330s, and christening his third son, born in Antwerp in 1338 by the fabled knight's name, was a sign that he had not forgotten the values of enterprise and endeavour that had led him to overthrow Mortimer's rule. It was also, perhaps, a wry joke. For the first seven years that followed the start of his reign proper in 1330, Edward got to know his realm. The near-ceaseless tourneying drew him close to the political community on both a symbolic and a social level. A fruitful marriage to Queen Philippa, which had produced the young Prince Edward of Woodstock in 1330, yielded more children at regular intervals. Isabella of Woodstock was born in May 1332, Joan of the Tower in late 1333, William of Hatfield, who died young in December 1336, and Lionel of Antwerp in 1338. But for all the young king's lusty grandeur, England was beset by troubles. The first three decades of the fourteenth century had been ruinous to the state of the realm and to public order. The great famine of 1315 to 1322 had caused widespread misery and death, and the turbulent politics that had dogged Edward II's reign from his coronation to his death had set the stage for lawlessness to thrive. In the Midlands, the Folville Gang, a corrupt gentry family from Leicestershire, took to large-scale violence and spoliation, murdering their political enemies with impunity, and even taking travelling judges hostage. 
A similar gang known as the Cotterills operated in the Peak District. Various attempts at sending judicial commissions into the shires to restore calm and royal law had met with resistance and collapsed under the strain of endemic abuses of local power. In response, Edward showed himself open to radical experiments with judicial reform. The itinerant system of the heirs, slow-moving, travelling county courts whose circuits might take seven years or more, was outdated and unwieldy. Instead, Edward listened in the Parliament of March 1332 as the Chief Justice, Sir Geoffrey Scrope, led a debate on reforming law and order. The system that eventually emerged was one in which permanent royal offices were created in the counties to regulate criminal disorder. The role of Keeper of the Peace, the predecessor of Justice of the Peace, sprang from this reform, and it was to these officials, backed by ad hoc royal commissions to deal with special cases such as those of the Folvilles and Cotterills, commissions of Oyer and Terminer, Heer and Judge, and sporadic local visitations of the Court of King's Bench, that the business of local peacekeeping would fall for the rest of the century. The system of English justice was institutionalized further than ever. No king would ever again ride as King John once had, sitting as judge where he chose and executing the judicial role of the crown in person. Yet if the king as judge was fading away, the king as military captain was an idea that Edward determined should be stronger than ever. His first target was Ireland. Not for a hundred and twenty years, since John's expedition in 1210 had an English king set foot in Ireland, but violent disorder was rife, and the authority of the English king over the Anglo-Norman settler barons had crumbled almost to nothing. During the summer of 1332, plans were drawn up to send a massive invasion force across the Irish Sea to re-establish royal rule. Just at the point of readiness, however, they had to be abandoned. On August 11, 1332, at Dublin Moor near Perth in Scotland, armies supporting the new Scottish king, Robert Bruce's son, David II, Edward's brother-in-law by marriage, clashed with rebel forces known as the Disinherited. These rebels were made up of Scots who had lost all they had at Bannockburn. They fought under John Balliol's son Edward, and were supported by Edward's friend and ally Henry Beaumont, a grizzled veteran of every major Scottish battle since Falkirk in 1298. The tiny army of the disinherited, which may have been only 1,500 strong, a tenth of the size of the Bruce forces, won a stunning victory, killing numerous Scottish knights and earls. Balliol was proclaimed king at Schoon on September 24th, and Scotland sank again into utter disarray. Edward III abandoned his plans to invade Ireland, and turned his attention to the northern border. At a parliament held in York in January 1333, he announced his intention to invade Scotland, shattering the truce established by the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, and reinvigorating the war for mastery that had stuttered so badly since the death of Edward I. Between 1333 and 1337, the capital of England became York, as Edward took the whole machine of government north to let him focus on the war. His army combined household troops, feudally summoned nobles with their knights, and foreign mercenaries, including the Ainalters who had fought during Isabella and Mortimer's ill-starred campaign. Regular soldiers were raised by array, a form of press-gang by which conscripted men were paid a day wage once they set foot outside their home counties, and included hobblers, light cavalry, infantry that fought with spears and knives, and archers who rode on horseback before dismounting to fight. Mounted archers were to become the most tactically effective and dangerous element of English medieval armies, and during the course of his reign Edward was to rely on them as his elite units, raising their status in the army well above the rest of the rank and file. If they were not quite equal to the aristocratic cavalry, Mounted archers nevertheless became some of the most respected and feared warriors in Europe during the fourteenth century. They and the rest of Edward's armies were fed and maintained in the field by the purveyance taken throughout the whole realm, a source of perennial grievance for English subjects. Edward's campaign began in the spring of 1333. Throughout the summer his captains, among them William Montague, Henry Percy, and Henry Earl of Lancaster's son Henry of Gromont, barons all roughly of the king's age and generation, 
assisted Edward Balliol in raiding across the border. Then the English laid siege to Berwick, before meeting the Scots in battle at Halidon Hill two miles away. The tactics used at Halidon Hill were those developed by Henry Beaumont at Dublin Moor, and they were to serve Edward well during the course of his reign. Although his army was perhaps only half the size of that of the Scots, Edward took up strong defensive positions on the hill, with three divisions of dismounted men-at-arms, each flanked by dismounted archers. The king commanded the central division, Edward Balliol led the left, and the king's uncle the Earl of Norfolk led the right, with the king's younger brother John of Eltham, Earl of Cornwall, beside him. There would be no cavalry charges at the Scottish Shiltrams. Bannockburn had taught the English that these were suicidal tactics. Rather, as the massed bands of Scottish spearmen advanced up the hill, the English bowmen loosed a vicious hail of arrows upon them, causing panic and terror, and scattering much of the Scottish advance before it even reached the men-at-arms. By the time hand-to-hand -hand combat was joined, the Scots were already tired and terrified. Edward and his men attacked the enemy bravely, and the king fought hand-to-hand -hand against Robert Stuart, the seventeen-year-old grandson of Robert Bruce, who was steward of Scotland. The battle very swiftly became a rout, with Edward's and Balliol's men remounting their horses and chasing the shattered Scots from the field. By the time the battle was over, there had been another bloody slaughter of the finest Scottish nobles and knights, including six earls, whom the king had buried with chivalrous propriety. Edward's victory at Halidon Hill was so complete that he was able to put Edward Balliol on the throne, reclaim Berwick for the English, and lay claim to large tracts of territory in the Scottish lowlands. He spent the second half of 1333 back in the southeast of England, hunting and holding tournaments. Early in 1334 Balliol agreed to return Scotland to full dominion status, making the Scottish crown once again a dependency of the English. It seemed almost indecently easy. Of course it was not. Since 1326 Scotland had been in alliance with France, and by June 1334, when Edward Balliol performed liege homage to Edward in Newcastle, it was known that the French king Philip VI had snatched the deposed King David II and his wife Joanna from Scotland, and given them sanctuary in Normandy, where they were ensconced in Chateau Gaillard, Richard the Lionheart's great fortress. In David's absence, Scottish resistance rallied under young Robert Stuart and John Randolph, the Earl of Moray. Much of the winter of 1334 and the summer of 1335, Edward spent marching an army around the lowlands in a violent, destructive tour of terror. This was repeated in July 1336 in the Highlands, where he burnished his chivalric legend by rescuing a group of ladies held prisoner at Lochindorb Castle. There was precious little chivalry to the rest of the brutal campaign, which was only marred for the English by the death from illness of Edward's younger brother John of Eltham in September. Edward's tactics, bloody rampages around enemy countryside, burning, looting, and killing with no greater strategic purpose than to demoralize enemy civilians, were exported to the continent in later years, earning English soldiers a reputation as some of the fiercest in Christendom. For all the terror inflicted on the Scots, however, a settlement did not emerge. Edward and his friends, particularly Henry of Gromont, who was showing himself to be a robust and vigorous captain, were learning the business of war, but they could not compel the Scots to love a Balliol king by slaughter alone. At the heart of the problem lay the alliance between the rebellious Scots and the King of France. For Philip VI, Plantagenet actions in Scotland were bound tightly to the status of Plantagenet dominions in Aquitaine. As long as the English refused to accept full French sovereignty over Gascony, Philip would support the Scots in their own struggle for independence. By 1337 Edward had lost some of his interest in burning Scotland into submission. At the heart of his approach to kingship lay a desire to tackle problems directly and energetically. The problem in 1337 was no longer Scotland, it was France. A new theatre of war tugged at him irresistibly. The greatest conflict of the Plantagenet years was about to begin. New Earls, New Enemies When Parliament met in March 1337, a hum of excitement and agitation settled over Westminster. There were reasons to be excited. 
Radical legislation was to be introduced to the country. A reform of the wool trade was planned. War loomed on two fronts. But more exciting than any of this, at least to observers of the Parliament and lovers of the pageantry and show of Plantagenet kingship, was the impending creation of six new peers of the realm. Edward III had been king for a decade. He had ruled in his own right for seven of those years, during which time he had shown himself to be a willing friend to the aristocracy. At great tournaments he held he had grown familiar with the wealthy, fighting elite of the country, and it was to these sorts of men that he felt naturally closest. There had been a general decline in the state of the aristocracy during the previous two generations. Edward I had been distrustful of nobility in general, and correspondingly stingy with earldoms. His suspicions of the rights of nobles were no more obvious than in the quo warranto inquiries, when his justices quizzed the barons of the realm about their right to wield powers and jurisdictions that might be deemed to belong to the crown itself. Edward II had been more inventive and liberal with the great landed titles, but he tended to save his key awards as gifts for his immediate favourites, rather than create families of great men who he feared would rival his authority. Edward II had made Gaveston Earl of Cornwall, Andrew Hartley Earl of Carlisle, Hugh Dispenser Earl of Winchester, and his half-brothers Earls of Norfolk and Kent, but of all these only the Earl of Norfolk lived past 1330. John of Eltham, who had been created Earl of Cornwall in 1328, had died on campaign in Scotland, and now lay at rest in Westminster Abbey. Unlike his grandfather or father, Edward 